We not just look at them 2,000 years ago and think, shame on them. May we look in our own hearts to see where we have forgotten that you're beautiful and you're powerful and holy. And may we come to your feet and say, Lord, help us to be worshipers of you who are passionate in our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A king was depressed by the events that were going on in his kingdom. He felt rejected by many of his subjects. And so he brought his three daughters in and just wanted them to encourage him and and cheer him up and reassure him. And after they talked for a while, the king said, tell me why you love me or how much you love me. And so the two oldest daughters, they said, oh, father, we love you more than all the gold and silver in the world. The youngest, named Mary, she said, Dad, Father, I love you like salt. Well, the king wasn't real excited about that response. He didn't think salt was of much value. Well, the cook overheard this conversation, and and she couldn't just go up to the king and say, Listen, king, you're wrong. So she found a more subtle way to help the king learn what the daughter's words really meant. And so the next morning at breakfast, she didn't put salt in any of the food. And it was so bland, each of the dishes, that the king didn't like it at all. And then it dawned on him what Mary was saying to him. She was saying, nothing is good without you. Just like nothing is good in some seasoning without salt. So he said, Mary, I understand now. Your love is the greatest of all, for nothing is good without me. Well, the church in Ephesus, that's our first church in Revelation chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bible, they didn't act like God was the salt of their life either. They didn't think that nothing was good without him. And so we find that they were a loveless church. They had a lot of activities, lots of programs. We think that they had a really good, strong doctrinal stand, and we'll see why in a moment when they took stands against unrighteousness. But they were not passionate. They were not fervent in their relationship with God. So the church in Ephesus is like many conservative evangelical churches, I believe. I think that you can look at each of these seven churches and see different kinds of churches throughout history and even today. And some have even built the case that that they are representative of seven typical kinds of churches. So let me ask you this. When we look at each of these seven churches, which do you think would describe Chihuahua Evangelical Free Church? Got seven choices. Some of them are, are a little difficult when we get into corrupt and hollow where there's no life, but which of these churches would fit us? Which would fit you? So let's look a little bit at what was Ephesus. Ephesus, as you can see on the map, was kind of in that lower left corner of Asia Minor, which is modern day, anyone? Turkey. This is Turkey. And you can go visit those seven churches. They're all in ruins. There's no churches left. Ephesus is the most spectacular of the ruins. It's a, it's, as you can see, it's near the ocean, so it's a, it's the top cruise ship destination of the seven churches. But what was the ancient city like? 
It was on a crossroads being near a harbor, so it was on a crossroads of Asia Minor of trade routes, and so many things came through. So it was a hotbed of spiritual activity. If you've read the book of Acts, you'll know that there was a big riot in Ephesus over the temple to Artemis or Diana. And so this huge temple, of course, they, they had a lot of worship. It was, you know, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember that, that chant? So this was a big deal to them, this temple. And so there were prostitutes, though, that because there were priests and priestesses, and so a lot of idolatrous worship involved some form of prostitution. And so there was a lot of religious cultic prostitutes in Ephesus. It was also known as a place where there was a center of occult magic, and it was a place, as many of the churches will be when we study them, of emperor worship. But Ephesus was so strategic that Paul, the apostle, in his missionary journeys, all the churches to plant the gospel, he stayed there for how long? Anybody know? Two years. That's the longest he stayed anywhere. Two years he's in Ephesus. And they think that the Apostle John, who wrote this book of Revelation, retired there before he was exiled to the nearby island of Patmos. So, let's launch in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So each of the seven letters will begin with a description of Jesus Christ. Does this one sound a little familiar from last week? Because they're going to draw almost all of these descriptions of, of the, in the opening from Revelation chapter 1. That's why we stopped and studied that last week. And so this is a phrase directly drawn to describe Jesus, our church boss, from Revelation chapter 1. He's featured here as holding these Eleven star, the seven stars in his hand. And we said last week it's not just a place of protection, but now we're going to focus that it's a place that he owns them, that they are his, that Jesus has the authority to speak to these churches about what they need to work on. He commends them, all but one. Sardis didn't get any commendation. But he also is going to challenge them and tell them, here's some problems. And Jesus has the authority to impose consequences on those churches. Do we think that's true today? Does Jesus have the authority to speak into your individual life? Does he have the authority to speak into our church? Because if he does, then we need to say, okay, Lord, what would you commend us for? What would you tell us we need to work on? So those are questions before us with the church boss that holds each of the churches all over the world in his hand. He says the seven lampstands, he walks among them. And so, of course, these represent the seven churches. And these lamps, of course, a light in Jesus' parable, a light on a hill, you don't put a bushel over it. So these are to be lights in the world. But when the churches get compromised or corrupted or hollow or they, in this case, lose their first love or they end up being lukewarm or they look like they're alive, but they're dead, those lights dim. Those lights are not, no, are not shining bright for the world to be drawn in and see. So these lampstands have a very symbolic and important meaning. Verse 2 of Revelation 2. 
I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for me and have not grown weary. So Jesus commends this church on several positive things. He says, you have a lot of good deeds, a lot of good activities. We would say today, we have lots of good programs that accomplish good things. And he commends them for having all of these good activities that are going on. He also says that um, you persevered, you challenged evil. They had a doctrinal purity that they didn't compromise. They stood on who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And so you could say they were a strong church doctrinally. Lots of good activities, a good strong statement of faith, if you will. And then it says, furthermore, they trusted Jesus in the midst of hardship. So they didn't give up when things got hard. And every one of these seven churches are going to be persecuted to some degree or another. There's not, it's not going to be easy taking Christianity into a Roman world, into a, a cultic pagan world in a lot of cases. And so they stood strong. They didn't compromise like some of the other churches are, we're going to find did. So they had hardship and they kept trusting. Furthermore, it says they didn't tolerate wicked people. They recognized evil, and they courageously challenged it when it was difficult. And and what would happen is that there were some apostles, people claiming to be apostles, really so-called apostles, really false apostles, and they would come in, and they would say, no, here's a teaching, and we'll find a lot in the New Testament. They would say, you have to be, if you're going to be a a real Christian, you have to be a good Jew and obey the law. That was a common thing Paul fought, but it doesn't say that here in particular. It just says, these apostles, who are people that go in to start churches, they're kind of like church planners with all kinds of authority to lay a foundation, they were false, and they were disrupting and destroying the church. And so the Ephesian church took a stand. They took a stand to say, when someone comes in and they try to disrupt the fellowship and they harm it and hurt it, then we're going to stop and we're going to talk to them. We're going to try to do some of the steps of church discipline we talked about last month. In September, they're not going to just go, well, you know, we don't want controversy. We don't want conflict. Let's just hope it goes away and push it to the side. They took a stand because it was going to destroy the church if they didn't, as we'll see with other churches. And so they were strong in their doctrine to be able to identify these things. The Ephesians took that stand. And then he adds one more positive trait. I mean, there's a lot, right? Lots of good activities, a lot of good, solid doctrine. They endure hardship, and they, and they take a stand against evil that comes into the church. He adds in verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, they're not entirely sure who the Nicolaitans were, so it's kind of a speculation And so it was some form of compromise, and we'll see these guys pop up, not next week, but the week after that when we we get to the the church that is compromised because of the Nicolaitans, Smyrna. Nope, not that one, Pergamos. 
And so the Nicolaitans, I read, did some reading on this, and here's an interesting theory that they thought because in the, the church of Pergamos, it's associated with Balaam and that Balak thing that was in the Old Testament, which involves sexual immorality, that they were promoting, oh, the law doesn't really forbid that anymore. And so they think it had to do with tying people into the sexual immorality, especially with the cult of Artemis right there on their doorstep. It would be natural to blend in. And so there was a lot of, you know, kind of, let's blend into society. Let's don't just point our fingers at people. Let's don't take those stands that are going to alienate. One theory is that Nicholas, because Nicolaitans would mean a follower of Nicholas, was one of the original seven uh, the deacons that were appointed in Acts chapter 6. And then he would be the, the deacon of Jerusalem, and then he would end up falling going into heresy, this uh, whole idea of you can just kind of go out and do whatever you want in your physical sexual life. So the idea, though, is that there was a compromise somewhere, somehow, to try to blend Christianity with the local practices. Today, some say we should do the same thing. You know, when we walk around and we talked in Sunday school about sharing Jesus, and to share Jesus, you have to sort of tell people they need Jesus, But to tell people they need Jesus, you have to convince them something they don't want to be convinced of. When you say to them, you're a sinner, oh, no, I'm not. Sinners, that's those people in prisons. That's, you know, adulterers or rapists or or thieves, criminals, and that's not me. And yet the Bible says every one of us is a sinner, right? And so... Now, though, in the last several decades, people say, no, we we need to soften that message and not tell people they're bad. But that's not what the scriptures say. How will you know you need a savior if you think you're fine? And so that would be an example. I think you can use some language to help people relate to it, but you can't change the concepts. We can change our methods and we can adapt them, but we can't adapt the message to be something it's not which says, we're all sinners. We were helpless without Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to do communion. And so he came. God himself came, took on flesh so he could die in our place. And you can't change the message. You can't, when you say to people, you know, Jesus says he's the only way. You know, somebody came up to me and said, you know, there was a person here in this church that was offended when you said Jesus is the only way. And it's like, well, I didn't make that up. That's something Jesus himself said. And so we can't change that. I'm sorry that there are other religions, the Bible doesn't say, lead to God. There aren't many paths to God. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ, because that's what the Bible says, not what Steve says. And so we can't compromise that message. And so maybe if there were Nicolaitans today, they would start to chip away at the edges of that. And so we have to stand strong with with what we believe. So number one point, doctrinal purity and good works are vital in our spiritual life. They are important, but, and that will be the second point. So start off first with doctrinal purity. So are you building your knowledge of who God is, what he's done, and how he works, how he thinks, the heart of God? Do you look in his word, his love letter to you, and do you study it so you can understand more of the heart of God? 
Because one of the great things about the church of Ephesus was they knew how to take a stand against evil in their midst. And sometimes evil is very subtle. We think it's, you know, the real obvious, you know, things that are out there that anybody can identify. But sometimes evil, well, it just, it tricks us. It's not so obvious. Sometimes the evils and deceptions of today are not so easy to identify. One person said, the greater the evil, the more deceptive the cloak the greater the evil, the more deceptive the cloak. And so if Satan is posing as an angel of light, who are we to think we're going to automatically know just because we're smart people? We have to know God's word. We have to say, you know, there's something not right about that. And I look in the scriptures and this is what it says. And we can look at our own lives, our own values, our own priorities, because the rest of the world, when they look at the West, they see people who are materialistic, consumer-driven, and very individualistic that it's all about me. What do I get? What do I want? What do I get out of it? What are my goals? And so that's one of the biggest things the rest of the world sees about us. We're very self-centered, materialistic people. Is there truth in that? Has that been a deception that we as a whole culture have bought into? Like the Ephesians, our faith needs a reliable foundation of truth that will speak into our lives so we can understand God's heart. And it's hard sometimes because we all have issues that we need to take before God. And like Ephesus, God has given us a spiritual gift or gifts. You might have more than one. Are you using them? I asked a couple of months ago when we were looking at the traits of a healthy church, the eight traits, One of them was, you know, using your ministry, your gifts in ministries. It's called gift-based ministry. Have you figured out your gift since then? Have you gone online to the test that was, that link that was provided to say, here's what I'm good at, here's my passions, and here's how I need to serve in the body of Christ. This is God's calling in my life. So how do you use your gifts for serving? And would God, if he came back today, commend you for serving your good works, your holding on to your beliefs and who he is? Because the church in Ephesus gives us a good example in those traits. But, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The church in Ephesus lost their first love. It wasn't an accidental loss. They were like, oh my gosh, I woke up one morning and my love for God was gone. It happened slowly. It happened without realizing it. When your passion for God dwindles, often one of the ways you can tell, not the only way, but one way is it's marked by a decrease in your love toward others. People, you start to look at them as sinners to be controlled or sinners to be pushed away rather than people to be loved and engaged. It might pop up with an attitude like this is, we don't want seekers in our midst. They might taint us or our children. So rules and traditions take center stage. And so this is maybe some of the things that the Ephesian church did because certainly the church, once it got structure, this was a big deal. We lost a lot of things for the sake of structure and programs and traditions. When I was a new Christian at age 18, my love for God, you know, it was one of those things that you're, when when you're 
been through teenage years and you've had your struggles and you suddenly see and meet Jesus Christ, it's revolutionary. And I was so excited. I love to go to church. I love to go to Bible studies. The more, the better. I love hanging out with Christians and, and learning about things. And there was this passionate fervency I had. But then it started to cool off. I went to seminary and there was so much studying to do that it, it started to become less enjoyable to study the Bible. It was a chore. You got graded for it. And, and so I began to see my passion and my fervency for God dwindle away. I began to look at, well, what are my needs? What are my ambitions? What do I want to do? And you can, did you know you could go to seminary and think about going to the ministry and, and it could be a flesh thing? Doing something good, but not always for all the good reasons. And so I had to find my, my first love again and not let seminary study it out of me. I needed to take my eyes off myself and put them back on God. See, love slips when you get settled into a routine. When you get settled into, we're, we're used to things being this way. But remember my very first sermon here in June, I said, you know, transition times are times when God wants to do new things in your heart. Maybe in this church, some new things to get ready for the next pastor. So has that happened to you, though? You found that you've settled? Has your love for God cooled off? Are you settled in? Don't want to see things change in your life? You like it just like it is? Because God might want to do a new thing with you. So the church of Ephesus was coasting on their spiritual activities. They were coasting on their good, solid doctrine. They could say they were doctrinally pure, their right doctrine. But they lost their heart. Have you ever been in a church that had right doctrine and lots of activities? You just didn't feel this passionate fervency for God. You didn't feel the Holy Spirit just there and it's like he was moving. Have you ever been in a church like that? Great teaching, great doctrine, lots of programs, but you just like, it just, just something's missing. Is it just me? Am I talking to the right people? <laughs> so what do we do for our own hearts? God says that a passionate heart that pursues him above all else then our right beliefs and our spiritual activities won't be enough, but we need, they need to start with that, that heart for God. Matthew 19, 13, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And by sacrifice, he means where they would take an animal to the altar. They would go through all the good religious rituals, and he says, you know, you can bring all the animals you want, but when you don't have a, a life of, of mercy and, and care and love, Those animals don't mean anything. They're just an outward action that you're doing that's supposed to show a real heart. But if your real heart's missing, go ahead, take the animal. Go ahead and fast. Do all those things. But if you're not really seeking God with your whole heart, you're missing something. Spirituality happens from the inside out. And then it overflows into your actions and into your life. Verse 5. Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So here's the cure for a cold heart. 
Remember, number one, what it's like at the beginning when you were fervent for God. I go back to that time of that feeling where I was so, nothing mattered more than learning more about God and knowing him. Go back. Remember what that was like. And you're saying, I, I, it's too many decades ago. Read the Psalms. That's one of my go-to places. When I'm feeling like I need to refresh my heart for worship, I go and I read, read through Psalms, several Psalms, that pick up on what passionate worship looks like, what struggle in life looks like, how long, O oh Lord, kind of feelings, and see how did the, the author of a Psalm, David or Asaph or whoever, how did, how did they deal with that worship? Because Psalm is our worship book of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the worship hymnal, if you will. So go back to Psalms, and, and you could read there, see how God showed up for them and how he will show up for you. Number two, repent. Repent literally means to change your mind. So we change our attitude about how we look at life. We remember what God has done in the past and how we've worshipped him. And then we say, you know, Lord, I need to change how I look at life, how I look at myself, how I look at the world. And don't stuff your head all full of knowledge and think that's enough. Because if you can't apply the knowledge that's here down into your heart, then that knowledge is not so valuable to you if you can't figure out how it works in your life. And so repent. Number three, Jesus tells them, return to the things you did at first. Remember how you started. And no matter how much we say we deeply love God, when he's not the center of our life, we've lost our first love. Here's the thing about love. The more you hoard it, the more it diminishes. The more you give it away, the more it increases. So Jesus says, if you continue in this state of going through activities, staying on the outward structures and missing the heart for me, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. No matter how good your doctrine, no matter how wonderful your many activities, it's not enough. A church can go on a reduced love diet only so long before irreversible hardness sets in. I mentioned last week, people can say, I'll wait and get committed to God later, and you find your heart hardens. Later, you're not interested. The same can happen to churches. They can get so fixed in this is the way we're going to be and will always be this way that a hardness can set in if we lose our love for God. So historically, Ephesus did respond to Jesus' call. The church did. And they grew. They became a center of Christian faith for a long time. But as the city of Ephesus declined later in the 5th century... So did the church. Eventually, in the 14th century, Muslim Turks came in and conquered the area, deported all the inhabitants, and the church ceased to exist. And like I mentioned at the beginning, it's now of the seven churches, you ever want to go to Turkey and see them, this would be the most spectacular of the ruins that you would see, would be in Ephesus. Verse 7, Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, where have we seen reference in Scripture to this tree of life in the paradise of God? Genesis 
chapter 2. Where else? Revelation chapter, last one, chapter 22. And so the beginning in Genesis, in the end, I think God is going to fix it all at the very, in the end, and have what he originally intended. And so he's referencing here to those who are overcomers. Because there is an individual call, even if the churches around you and the culture around you has deteriorated, you can still be an overcomer. You can still be a person who's a follower of Jesus and passionate in your faith. You can overcome that pull to sit and soak. Many churches... They do well at first. They have lots of new people, build facilities, start innovative programs, and then they go into the life cycle after this this innovation and mission becomes maintaining and coasting along. And they think they've arrived, and woe to anyone who comes and challenges them to greater things, even the Lord. They got programs to run. They can't be challenged. But if they will overcome the reward to eat from the tree of life, and participate in the paradise of God. That's what God is calling them to say. Remember, there is a reward at the end. Hold on to your first love. There's a reward in the midst, on your way to the end. Hold on to your first love. So our love for God is the center of our spiritual life. It's good. We need right doctrine. We need activities, we need to use our gifts, but our love for God, that's the center, that's the core, that's the foundation from which all the rest flows, and the Ephesians had forgotten that. Have we? Do we forget? And we sacrifice love for God for too many activities, we get too busy. So somebody wrote nine signs that I might be forsaking my first love. These are written in your bulletin. Number one, I delight in the Lord less than I delight in someone or something else. Number two, I don't spend as much time in the word and prayer as I once did. Number three, I explain my sin away by claiming to be only human. This is just the way I am. Number four, I don't treat others like I would treat the Lord Jesus. Number five, I view God's commands as restrictions to happiness, not expressions of love. Six, I seek for the world's approval rather than God's approval. Seven, I have stopped telling others much about Jesus. Number eight, I cling to traditions more than Jesus. Number nine, I spend more energy on church activity than closeness to Jesus. Do any of these nine signs describe you? Are you resting in your doctrine and traditions and activities more than passionately, fervently seeking God? And when I say passionate and fervent, I don't mean you have to walk around screaming and yelling and, and, and just overflowing with emotions. It isn't connected to your emotions. It's connected to the reality of the fruit of the Spirit bubbling out of your heart. Are you finding the more busy you are, the less deep you are with God? Remember your first love. Seek the relationship with God as the center of your spiritual life because everything else flows from that, every other area of your life, and nothing matters more. 
Let's pray as we get ready for communion. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's think what God is trying to say to us as individuals, as a church. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come maybe closer to the Ephesians than we want to think. Many, so many conservative evangelical churches, Lord, would fit the profile of the church of Ephesus. They have great doctrine. They have lots of good programs. But they're not a very warm and passionate place that you can sense the Holy Spirit moving. I've been in many churches like that, Lord, and I pray that we would not be like that. We would not be guilty of the sin of the Ephesians of losing our first love. So, Lord, speak into our heart of where we are holding back. What areas of our life, what areas in our heart are we afraid to have any kind of emotional feeling for you? It doesn't feel right somehow. For a guy, it doesn't feel manly to say you love God. Help us to get past these things and to know what it's like to have a life that just lives for you. Lord, as we come into a time of communion, when we remember what you have done for us because we were helpless to do it for ourselves, and we remember that every month, but may we not just do this as one more spiritual activity that doesn't have heart. Lord, may this communion time be time where we examine our heart, we give those areas to you, we confess our sins, we claim your forgiveness, your cleansing for those sins because that's what communion reminds us of, that you have cleansed our hearts and we need only to worship you, not earn your love. We just have to worship you. May we do that, this communion. May, Lord, if there is somebody here that is feeling all caught up in things and they don't think they can do that, may they have the freedom to, put, to pass the plate by until they get right with you. And not, as Corinthians says, take this communion in an unworthy manner. Speak into our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.